Let's pray together. Father, I pray that our hearts will be filled with worship when we think of who you are and what you have done. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us the scriptures, the, the, these pictures of your character and your nature and your goodness, Lord, the ways that you have revealed yourself to your people, the ways that you have intervened in the lives of those whom you love. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would move our hearts toward you. That, Father, as we come together here in this place, seeking your face, that, Lord, we would worship. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you have heard our prayers, that you have saved our souls, that you have delivered us from the bondage we were in to sin, from our captivity in this world, and given us freedom in Christ. So Lord, today, help us to worship you. Father, as we come to you in song, in offering, in scripture reading, in prayer, in preaching, and listening, Lord, I pray that these things would not just be habit for us. They would not just be things that we are checking off of a list, Father, but that these would be things that draw us near to you, that these would be things that make us more like Jesus Christ, that these would be things that delight our souls. And so, Father, as we come to your word together this morning, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of your people. Use your scriptures, use the message that I have prepared, Lord, to change our minds, to reorient our focus, to help us to trust in you. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 2, is where we'll begin this morning, Exodus chapter 2. Last week, we began our series through the book of Exodus. We considered how Israel came to be under enslavement in the land of Egypt. And we talked about how all things are ordained by a sovereign God for His divine purposes. We also saw the birth of the one whom God would use to bring Israel out of their bondage and into realization of the promises of God. A baby boy who was floated down the river in a makeshift ark being saved through the waters of judgment by Pharaoh's daughter who takes pity on him and brings him into the palace. But not before he spends much of his early life with his birth family who teach him the ways of the Lord. Our passage today picks up the story 40 years later. We know this from Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, which we'll talk more about in a few moments. And as we examine our passage today, I hope that we will see again the sovereign hand of the Lord at work in the story of Exodus. 
But further, I want us to see the love that the Lord has for his people and the ways that our prayers are seen and heard by him. And also to take this glimpse that we are given of God's nature and the revelation of his name to Moses and for that to both comfort us and to draw us to a posture of awe and wonder toward the Lord, ultimately culminating in the coming of God in flesh, Jesus Christ. And so let's look together at Exodus chapter 2, and we'll read verse 11 through 22 as we begin, where we first see a stranger in a strange land. If you got one of our listening guides today, you'll see that there's three points, and that's the first one, stranger in a strange land. So let's read together Exodus 2, beginning in verse 11, and we will read through verse 22. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs, of water to, filled the troughs to water their father's flock. <coughs> Excuse me. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. When it comes to what what has been happening in Moses' life or his motivations for going out among the Hebrews on this particular day, our text doesn't really give us much in the way of detail here. For that, as as I said earlier, we need to look to Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. So Stephen in Acts 7, as he is about to be stoned to death for being a Christian, tells the gospel to the crowds. And as a part of his gospel presentation, he is recounting many things from the story of the people of God throughout the Old Testament. And he says this in verse 22 through 25, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. It is apparent from what Stephen says that Moses most assuredly knew that he was an Israelite, despite growing up in the household of Pharaoh. So I'm sorry to tell you, 
the Prince of Egypt movie lied to you. Moses knew that he was an Israelite. He knew that. And when he is 40, it, the Bible, Stephen says, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. Again, when we read the things that are happening in the scriptures, we need to understand that nothing that is taking place is happening by chance. Okay, this is not just some random emotional stirring that just happens one day to Moses. We should instead see this as something done by God's hand. Think about it. The Egyptians had been mistreating the Hebrews since before Moses was ever born. This was not a new phenomenon. This was something that had been going on for more than 40 years at this point. And it's unlikely that this was the first time that Moses had gone out to visit them. It's unlikely that this is the first time he has seen Hebrews being mistreated. But something about this particular instance was different. Something different was happening within Moses on this day. Because at some point, Moses had come to understand that the Lord had sovereignly appointed him as the Savior, the Deliverer of his people. That's why when Moses sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew, likely seeking to kill him, Moses strikes and kills the Egyptian. This is not an instance of Moses losing his temper This isn't Moses saying, oh, you're going to beat up my cousin while I'm going to kill you. No, this is Moses acting as the deliverer of God's people. That's what Stephen says. Stephen says, Moses thought that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Part of why they probably didn't understand is because Moses apparently believed wrongly that he is bringing about salvation to the Hebrews by killing one Egyptian at a time. Moses, in his mind, apparently is thinking, I'm going to be the savior of the Israelites. I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt. And so step one, kill that Egyptian. Step two, kill another Egyptian. And on and on and on until we reach deliverance. Moses is repeating the same mistake that Abraham made. God made a promise that he would give Abraham a son. And then it took a little while. And so Abraham waited, still nothing, still nothing. Finally, his wife says, look, it's been a long time. God's definitely not going to do anything. So I got an idea. Here is my young handmaiden. Take her as your wife. She'll definitely give you a son. And so Abram says, okay, sounds like a good plan to me. And he takes her as his wife, and she gives him a son. But this was not the son of the promise. Moses is making a similar mistake. Just because you know what God's plan is, just because you know what the purposes of God will be does not mean that it is up to you to bring it about. Abraham was supposed to have a baby, a son, with his very elderly, very barren wife. But because it didn't happen at the speed that they thought it should, 
They took matters into their own hands. Moses has apparently come into this realization that he is the deliverer of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he very foolishly decides, I'm going to start killing Egyptians. That's the way out. Well, that's absurd. And what ends up happening is that Moses ends up having to flee. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Because he took God's plans into his own hands. And so, brothers and sisters... We need to remember the promises of God happen on God's time. They happen on God's time. They don't happen on our time. There is nothing that we can do that is going to bring the promises of God to fruition at any time before the Lord says, now. And when we think that we can, we end up making everything worse. That's what happened with Abraham. That's what happens with Moses. Because the next day, with Moses now fully embracing his role, his appointed role as the leader of Israel, he comes upon two Hebrews fighting one another. He comes upon two men that are literally beating the snot out of each other. And so he, understanding his role, gets between them. He intervenes and sets himself as a judge in their conflict. The Bible tells us that he says to the one who was wrong, why did you strike your companion? How does he know who is the one in the wrong? Because he is acting as a judge. He recognizes what has happened. And so he says to the one in the wrong, why are you, doing, why are you hitting this man? You are in the wrong. And the man responds to Moses in a way that makes it clear that he is rejecting Moses' authority. He first asks Moses, who made, they ask him, who made you a prince and judge over us? A prince and judge over us. The use of the word prince there is likely kind of a jab, a dig at him. Because they all know this Hebrew who grew up in Pharaoh's house. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. He probably has an Egyptian haircut. He looks like an Egyptian. And so he's probably using that prince line as just a jab. Like, hey, we know who you are. You think you're somebody special because you're a prince. And he also uses that word judge. The reference to a judge has, has to do with one who has authority from God to settle disputes among his people. That's what it means to be a judge over the nation of Israel. That's what Moses is trying to do. And you know, the most ironic thing about this is that, you know what the answer to this question is? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? The answer to the question is God did. But they don't know that. They don't understand that. And what this is for us is a picture of how Israel is going to treat their leaders all the way until Jesus Christ comes. Those who are in authority over them, what are they going to do? Reject them. Reject them. The ones who are righteous, they reject. The ones who are wicked, they follow into wickedness. Over and over and over again. Starting here with Moses. And then after they question Moses and reject his authority, they say something that really catches Moses off guard. Do you intend to kill me 
like you killed the Egyptian. When Moses had done that, he thought he had gotten away with it without anybody knowing. The Bible tells us that he looked this way and that way. He made sure nobody was looking before he came up and struck down the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. But apparently, he was not very thorough because somebody somewhere saw him kill that Egyptian. My money is on the person who was being beaten to death. That's what I think. And so, Moses, they asked Moses, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And so now Moses is in a really difficult position. By acting ahead of God's time, he has placed himself in significant danger. The scriptures tell us that he was afraid. And that was before we, we know that Pharaoh found out. He was afraid before Pharaoh found out. Then Pharaoh finds out. And what does Pharaoh want to do? He wants to kill Moses. That's his intention. Interestingly, we are never told in the scriptures how Pharaoh responded to his daughter adopting a Hebrew baby boy. That never comes up. It's possible that Pharaoh embraced Moses as one of his own. But I think what's more likely is that Pharaoh did what dads who are wrapped around their daughter's little fingers do. And he just let her have what she wanted, even if he didn't like it. He just kept his mouth shut. I think that's more likely what happened. But he never really was super fond of this arrangement. This boy who should have been killed already 40 years ago. And so now, what does he have? He has a reason. It's the law, sweetheart. I'm sorry. I know he's your adopted son, but he broke the law. He killed someone. So we got to kill him now. Because the truth is this. Pharaoh is the king. Pharaoh could say, just like he said, when his daughter defined, defied the law and kept a Hebrew baby boy instead of drowning him in the Nile, he could have said, oh, well, he's family. You know how those rich families are. Get away with anything. Literally get away with murder. But he doesn't. He sets out to kill Moses. This man who should have died in the river 40 years ago, he now has cover to kill him. So Moses is afraid for his life, and he flees from there and heads to the land of Midian, out of the reach of Pharaoh. And we're told that he sits down by a well. He knows no one. He has nowhere to go. He just comes across a well, and he just sits down. And while he's there, he encounters the seven daughters of the priest of Midian, who is given two names in Scripture, both Reuel and Jethro. I like Jethro better. Fits more with our context, I'd say. And they are coming to get water for their father's flocks. I want you to notice something here. Typically, this is man's work because it's dangerous work. You're out in the fields. You could come across robbers or people who intend to do you harm. And so typically, women were not out in the fields doing these things. But this priest of Midian has no sons. He apparently doesn't have male servants to send to do this task. So he sends his daughters, his seven daughters, to go. 
And these local shepherds out there are bullies. And they come and they chase his daughters away and chase their flocks away. This is our water. Get out of here. You can't come and drink our water. You can't come and use this water for your flocks. Get out of here. Moses here once again shows his true nature as a protector. And he stands up for the women. He drives the shepherds away. And he even waters their flocks for them. He goes above and beyond. He does what is right, even though he doesn't have to do anything. Why? Because the Lord has placed an increasing sense of justice and righteousness in his heart. He knows what is right and what is wrong, and what is happening to these women is wrong. And so he acts to protect them and goes further than that to care for them. And this was apparently a regular occurrence that these local shepherds would bully them because when the women get home, their father says, you guys are back really early today. How'd you manage that? And so they tell him the story of the man who delivered them and even watered their flocks. Notice that in Egypt, Moses is seen as a Hebrew by the Egyptians. But he's apparently enough like the household of Pharaoh, whether in how he's dressed or his adornments or whatever it may be, that these women identify him as an Egyptian, just like the Hebrew men did in calling him a prince. So Moses really kind of is a man with no country. Because he's not really Egyptian, but he doesn't really look Hebrew And so Reuel tells his daughters, once they tell him this story, go get this man. Bring him home for dinner. Go get him. We need to thank him. We need to show him our gratitude for what he has done. But I guarantee you, Reuel has something else in mind. Here's a random guy all by himself sitting at a well. I got no sons. I got to send my daughters out with the flocks. Maybe... Just maybe, this guy's looking for a wife. Maybe, just maybe, he's looking for a job. Maybe, this is the answer to my problems. We already know that he can beat up those shepherds. So he brings him into his home, and they feed him. And once he's there, Moses just kind of decides, you know, I like it here. I think I'm going to stick around. Verse 21 in chapter 2 says, And Moses was content to dwell with the man. He was content. Moses thought, hey, it's good enough. And so we're told that Reuel gives him one of his daughters to marry. A woman named Zipporah. And he has a son that he names Gershom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for sojourner. Moses being rejected by the Hebrews, being sought for death by the Egyptians, being identified as an Egyptian while in Midian and marrying a Midianite woman, having children with her, these all underscore this reality that Moses is a stranger in a strange land, which helps us to see him as a representative of his people because they too are strangers in a strange land. But we must remember that all of these events were not random chance. These were all orchestrated by God for his perfect purposes. 
Because the Lord, being a long-suffering God, has been giving the peoples of that region time and opportunity to repent of their wickedness. The Lord will, on occasion, let us persist in our sin. Giving us opportunity to come under conviction, to recognize the error of our ways, and repent. Think about the story of Jonah. The Lord tells Jonah, the time for the Ninevites is up. Go, tell them I'm going to destroy them. And even then, even in the face of that message, the Ninevites repent. And what does the Lord do? He relents of the disaster that he was going to bring upon them. The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He gives opportunity and time to repent. But eventually, the bill will come due. There comes a point when the time to do that is up. And for the Egyptians, that time is fast approaching. But remember, time is a relative term, especially to God. Fast is a relative term, excuse me, especially in reference to God. What we think is fast, God does not feel the same way. So remember, the Israelites have been in Egypt at this point for over 400 years. Moses was born the Savior, and we waited 40 years. And now, Moses has fled the land, and he's back in Midian. And we're going to find out that Moses is in Midian for 40 more years. Let's look together at the next section of our, of our sermon passage today. Uh, we're going to look at Exodus 2.23 through chapter 3, verse 12, where we see God knew. God knew. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now... Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, 
And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. During those 40 years that Moses was in Midian, the Pharaoh dies. But the oppression of the Israelites persists into the next Pharaoh's reign. And so they continue to groan and cry out for rescue to God. And the language that we see used here is something that we must take care to see properly. Because this is communicating about God in a way that could be misunderstood. It could be misunderstood. And so I want to make sure that we understand rightly what is happening here. Okay, first of all, we're told that the cry of the Israelites came up to God. As though our prayers aren't known by Him before we speak them. Second, we're told that God remembered His covenant. As though He is capable of forgetting. Third, we are told that God saw their suffering. As though He was unaware until he saw it with his own eyes. And finally, we are told that God knew, as though God is not the one, is, is the one, is not the one who knows all things. So do you see here the, diff, the difficulty? God is being spoken of in this passage in a way that seems to contradict what we know about God. When we read through passages like this, we need to understand the difference between language that is communicating a reality about God to us and language that is putting God into terms that we can understand. Consider these two passages. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So here we have a clear picture of God being sovereign over all things. Saying, what I declare is what will happen. What I intend is what is going to come to pass. But then in places like Exodus 32, 14, we find things like this. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Those two things seem to contradict each other, right? They don't seem to work together. And in a more even even more egregious example, consider the story of God's rejection of Saul in 1 Samuel 15. In that same narrative, it starts with the Lord saying that he regrets making Saul king. And later, Samuel says to Saul that the Lord is not a man that has regrets. How do we understand this? 
How do we reconcile these seemingly contradictory things that we're told about God? We do this by recognizing that the Bible is putting things into terms that we can understand because we are incapable of fully understanding God. If you were a part of our Attributes of God study that we did in theology class, you'll remember some of this. We talked about this language that makes God like us. The Bible uses phrases like God inclined his ear to me. God doesn't have ears. He does not have a physical body. So he can't really incline his anything. Because he doesn't, he's just a spiritual being. But when it uses language like that, it's supposed to help us to think in human terms, the Lord is paying attention to me. And so when Moses uses this language, this is supposed to be comforting and reassuring to the people of Israel. That God, who is altogether different from us, still cares for us, still loves us, still hears our prayers, still keeps his promises. That's how we live within this tension. So what we should remember is that if the Lord has not moved in response to our prayers yet, it's because it is not time for his purposes in this matter to come to pass. He had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they would have a land of their own. And yet here they are in captivity in a foreign land. Praying, Lord, where are you? When are you going to rescue us? When are you going to work? When are you going to move? And all the while, the Lord is saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. But when it is time, when it is time for his purposes to come to pass, it will be as though he is now fully aware of it and he has his full attention and he is going to act in accordance with his own character to the fullest extent. That's what we should take away from passages like this. That's exactly what God does here in calling Moses. So he's out keeping Jethro's flocks, and we're told of this incredible sight that he sees, a bush that is burning but is not consumed. And there in the midst of the flames is the angel of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I would probably respond very similarly to Moses. I'm going to go check this out. This is a very interesting thing that I am seeing. There is a fire in a bush, but the bush is not burned. There is an angel in the fire. I got to go see this for myself. So he goes to check it out. And we're told that it happens at Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai which will figure in significantly later in the Exodus. And as Moses turns aside, he hears the voice of the Lord calling out to him, Moses, Moses, out of the flames. It recalls the Lord speaking to the patriarchs in this way with the double usage of their names. Abraham, Abraham, very similarly. It's supposed to help us to understand Moses is the next in the line of the patriarchs. In addition, this use of fire here by the Lord is supposed to remind us of things like Abraham's vision, 
where he sees the Lord in a fire. These are supposed to recall these things to help us all to recognize this is God's continuation of the story of his promises. And so the Lord instructs Moses to take off his sandals because this is holy ground. This is simply because the Lord is there. We need to be really careful to not read into this. We need to be careful not to read into this because I have known people that say, oh, you have to worship God with your shoes off. You got Because you're standing on holy ground. I've known pastors that preached with their shoes off as though the platform in the church building was holy ground. This is simply the Lord expressing the way that he is to be revered in this particular moment and not something that is reinforced continually in the worship of God. There's no mention of the priests going barefoot in the temple, for example. You know, that, that, that's not something that occurs. This is, a, this is something that happens here, and it's not something that we should take as prescriptive. So please wear shoes when you come to church. For the good of your neighbor, wear shoes. Okay? And so God identifies himself. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses is afraid because of the holiness of God. He is afraid to look at the face of God. And so God tells Moses that he has come down to deliver his people. Again, language helping us to understand who God is. God is what we refer to as omnipresent. He is in all places, all times. But all of a sudden, we're told God came down. It's to help us to recognize, again, God is devoting the fullness of his attention to this problem right here. And he's going to deliver his people to a land flowing with milk and honey, a reminder of the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And how is he going to deliver his people? Is he going to supernaturally cause the Egyptians to say, hey, you guys can go. Be free. Is he going to work some big miracle like that? Not exactly. He says to Moses, and I'm sending you to go lead them out. You are going to be the deliverer. God could deliver his people in any way that he chooses, but he chooses to use this man. Moses does not want to go, but he uses the excuse, and he uses the excuse that he is unworthy. Who am I? Who am I to go here? Who am I to go do this thing? But God says that who Moses is is essentially irrelevant because why? Because I will be with you. And he tells Moses, if you want a sign that these things will come to pass, I'll give you a sign. And it's kind of a strange sign. He says, you're going to worship God on this mountain. You're going to serve God on this mountain. Well, that doesn't make any sense for a multitude of reasons. Number one, that's not a sign for right now. That's a sign for way later, after the Exodus. Number two, you just said you were going to take us to the promised land. But the path between Egypt and the promised land does not pass by this mountain. It's a different direction. So what does this have to do with anything? But what this is, is something for Moses to look back upon when it seems like the Lord has abandoned them in the wilderness. God is not keeping his promises 
And when they come upon this mountain, Moses is going to go, oh yeah, this is that sign I was told to watch for. And so Moses is given this calling by God. And we've already seen the first of his several objections to this. And then he gives the second one, and this is where we're going to conclude today with the name of God in Exodus 3, 13 through 15. And I promise my, my comments on this section are brief. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Moses, in his protest, says, well, well they're not going to believe me, so when I go, who do I tell them sent me? Who do I tell him sent me? What is his, what's your name? And God says to them, God says to Moses, tell them that Yahweh has sent you. Yahweh has sent you. A name that roughly translates to I am who I am or I will be who I will be or I am that I am. Any of those are legitimate possible uses of his name. <clears throat> I want to take just a moment here as, as a brief aside, and I want to um, get on one of my soapboxes really quickly. As you all know, I am, I am passionate about worshiping God properly, about speaking about God properly, about understanding God properly. And one of my big pet peeves is that people use the word Jehovah as a reference to God. That, not only is it not God's name, it's not even a real word. It's literally gibberish. What happened was, People who were afraid to say the name of God, maybe out of reverence, maybe out of superstition, we don't really know, decided that they were going to take his name and they were going to take the vowel sounds from another one of his names and place it into the name Yahweh. Coming up with Yahowah, which has been transliterated into English as Jehovah. But if you break that down into Hebrew, it's literally the same as just going, because it's nothing. It's, it's babble. So, when we speak of God, don't call him Jehovah, because that's not his name. Okay? Okay. I'll get off my soapbox now. So, in telling Moses his name, I am who I am, in telling Moses his name, he is giving a window into his own nature. Think about the things we learn just from this name. First of all, 
I am. I am. I am. This tells us that the Lord is eternally self-existing. He is eternally self-existing. No one, no being created God. One of children's favorite questions to ask. Who, who made God? God made everything. Who made God? Nobody made God. God is. And he always has been. And he always will be. And thus, he is self-existing. And because he is self-existing, that also means that he is not dependent upon anyone or anything for anything ever. Children are dependent upon their parents. We are dependent upon God for the air that we breathe, for him to continue to speak us into existence. We are dependent upon things outside of ourselves. God has no need. Thus, he is completely self-existing. We also, in this name, recognize that God is unchanging. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. God is who God is, period. He does not change. There is no shadow of turning in him. Moses expressing the, or God expressing these things to Moses is supposed to encourage Moses to go and do what he has been told because God is expressing that he is capable of the task. His name also tells us that he is independent and sovereign. I am who I am does not have an asterisk that says, as long as so-and-so says it. One of the great errors in the Roman Catholic Church is that they treat Jesus as though he is not I am who I am. They treat Jesus as though he is I am who Mary, my mama, tells me to be. I am who I am. No one commands God. And one other thing we see, and this is not an exhaustive list. This is just some of the things that stuck out to me as I was preparing this, for this message. God is inexhaustible. I am who I am. There is no time in which God is less than who he is. He is who he is forever. No matter what needs may arise on this endeavor, God's presence with Moses will be sufficient because he is dependent upon no one. He does not change. He is sovereign over all things. And he is inexhaustible. So when God remembers his promises, he has everything needed to bring them to pass. If I promise my wife I'm going to buy her a Rolls Royce, I do not have what is needed to bring that to pass. I will likely never have what is needed to bring that to pass. Thankfully, my wife doesn't want a Rolls Royce. But the Lord, his promises, he has what is needed to bring them to pass. 
One of the things that I've always found interesting about this passage is that this is the first time that God expressly names himself in Scripture, the first time that he expressly tells us this name. But if you go back and read Genesis, you will notice a whole lot of the, lower, of the small caps lords throughout that book. When you see that in your Bible, as you've heard me say before, that is when the Scriptures use the name Yahweh. So when you see that, look, that small caps Lord, that's what's happening. And that's used throughout Genesis, even though we're not told that that's God's preferred specific name until here. So it's unclear for us whether or not God's people in Genesis knew about it already. We're not entirely sure if at some point that is not recorded for us, God said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, just FYI, uh, my name is Yahweh. That, that very likely could have happened. And it could have been something that the elders and the leaders kind of kept as a secret for themselves, as a way of vetting people who came and said, I speak for the Lord, right? It's a really easy marker. If somebody shows up and says, hey, listen, I have a word from God, you can go, okay, well, what's his name? If he told you a word, if he sent, gave you a word for us, you should know his name, right? It's possible that that's what's happening. Otherwise, I'm not really sure what would be accomplished by Moses saying, well, who am I going to tell him sent me? And God tells him his name and he walks in and he goes, all right, guys, Yahweh told me to come deliver you. And they're all going to go, who? So on some level, some of the people must have known God's name. And God also tells him to remind them of the fact that he is the God of their fathers. And he says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so God here reveals himself in a significant way that is no longer a secret. He says, tell all the people, this is my name, and this is how I am to be remembered forever. This revelation of himself is for the good of, our, of his people forever. And so remember these things, that the Lord reveals himself to his people. And we see this most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, right? John talks about this in John chapter 1, where he says... No one has ever seen God, but Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth, he has made him known. And so how do we know God? By knowing Jesus Christ. Another thing to remember from our passage this week, from our passage this morning, is that God hears our prayers. He hears our prayers. I realize that sometimes praying can feel very futile. We're praying and we're praying and we're praying, and guess what? That person's still sick. They still died. That, that, that family who lost their home, they're still homeless. That nation that's facing, that church in that nation that's facing persecution, they're still being persecuted. Why is God not answering our prayers? Remember that God always hears and God always acts, but he does not always act in the way that we think he should. And he does not always act when we think he should. But he does act. Sometimes the act is sanctifying us and growing our trust in him. 
Sometimes the act is reminding us that we must trust in him fully. Sometimes the act is deliverance. Sometimes the act is healing. But it's not always. We do not get to decide how the Lord acts. The people of Israel probably would have preferred that the Lord would have acted much sooner than he did in bringing them out. But the Lord moves in his time for his own purposes. And so the most important thing that we can do is to remember the name of our Lord. I am who I am. When things are hard, when things are sad, when things look bleak, I am who I am. When we read the pages of Scripture and we see promises like what Jesus said, that he would never leave us or forsake us and we feel alone, remember, I am who I am. Jesus doesn't change his mind. He doesn't break promises. He will be with us. And so what can we take from these passages? What can we take from this? Trust in God. As he reveals himself to us, that should increase the depth of our trust in him. And so don't read the Bible as a book of promises. Oh, God said that he would do this for me. And God said that he would do that for me. Instead, read the Bible as a book of the revelation of God himself. Because God is what we get. Everything else is extra. That's why Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's okay to pray for healing. It's okay to pray for those things. But not when they're our only hope. If God doesn't heal me, then he's not good. Wrong. We need to understand that whatever happens is good because God is good. Trust in him. Don't make the mistake Moses made. And we're going to find out more about that when we come back to Exodus in a couple of weeks. Trust fully in the Lord because he has revealed himself to us to show that he is trustworthy. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the revelation that you have given us of yourself and your scriptures. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust in you. No matter what happens, no matter how bleak things may be, no matter where we find ourselves, help us to rest in the knowledge that you are who you are and you always will be. Father, please Move in the hearts of your people today that we would trust you more fully. In Christ's name, amen.